Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by Pastor Abe Lee. He's preaching from Psalm 19. Um, I apologize. A second ago, I did not introduce myself. Uh, Good morning. My name is Abe. I serve as the pastor here at Church of the Beloved. And if you are joining us for the first time today, I'm really glad that you're here. We, as a church, we love to get to know you. So please stop by, say hi. Yeah, don't run away. Don't, Don't disappear. Just all right, if you have to, you have to. But we'd love to actually get to know you, get connected with you, and let you know a little bit about who we are as a church. Now, let me explain. Back in May, we started a new sermon series here at Church of the Beloved uh, on the book of Psalms. And I was having a conversation with someone, and this person mentioned how, you know, oftentimes one will read through the Psalms or read a Psalm, but rarely actually sit on that Psalm for a period of time, which is exactly why it was decided that we as a church, we should take some time to dive deeper into this anthology of poems and songs written across hundreds of years by the ancient Jews. And these Psalms are, these songs are very, very old. I, I truly believe that the relevance of this collection, it has not diminished over time. This collection of 150 poems and lyrics, they are so valuable. They provide valuable songs of wisdom and salvation, of redemption and justice, songs that that paint a picture of who our Redeemer is, who our friend is, who our Savior is. And through this series, we're really hoping uh, that we're going to be able to show you the applicability of, uh, of all the Psalms by diving deeper into a few of them. Now, last week, uh, one of our elders, Michael, Michael Morgan, he, uh, he preached on Psalm 63. Unfortunately, because we were meeting off-site last week due to construction here, there is no official recording of that message. But I got a chance to read his notes, and uh, someone whom shall not be named uh, secretly recorded it on their phone. Uh, and maybe you can ask Mike about it. If he's kind, he might share it with you if you missed it. But for those of you who were there last week, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed hearing and learning of uh, what he taught, uh, how his contextualization of spiritual death in today's language, today's vernacular, uh, that being akin to seeking numbness versus seeking God's promise of peace, love, and joy, I thought was awesome. Uh, he explained how that psalm, uh, that it is self-sacrificial love that helps us attain God's promise of an absolute fulfilled life in Christ. Some wonderful points that he made, so if you get a chance to ask him about it. But today, we're going to dive into Psalm chapter 19. Um, I was thinking about this. When I was a teenager, which was over years ago, uh, I was asked to help out as a, as a counselor, uh, a counselor at an overnight camp uh, somewhere, I think it was in Michigan, I actually don't know, I, 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 I just remember it was in the middle of some woods somewhere very far from the city, and I also remember I didn't want to do it, I, I somehow got forced into doing it, because I'm, I'm not a nature kind of guy. I, I, I prefer the city. I, I like concrete, steel, glass. These are the things that I enjoy. Nature is beautiful. Nature is awesome and wonderful, just not my thing. 
which kind of makes my wife, Suzette, very sad. But, you know, thankfully she loves me anyway. Um, but I was helping at this camping uh, cabin week-long thing. It was like the third night. And after all the kids had gone to bed, me and some of the other counselors, we decided we're going to take the canoe out uh, into the middle of the water in the middle of the night. And so we rode out into the middle of this little, I think it was a pond, maybe it was a lake, I don't know. But we rode out into the middle, and we just chilled there and just started looking up into the sky. And as I said, I'm a city kid. If you are from the city, you know light pollution is a thing. It does not let you see anything in the sky, which, as I'm thinking about it, is probably why I love the Chicago skyline so much, you know. When you see all the buildings lit up, it's like stars. You know, I, I remember I used to, I would drive home from Champagne, uh, uh, or whenever I'm driving down LSD, which is, for those of you who don't know, that's Lakeshore Drive, which, by the way, you're not going to be able to do that for a while because of the whole NASCAR thing. Sorry. Uh, if you live on Lakeshore Drive, you're totally screwed. Anyway, seeing that skyline was the most awesome sight. Me and my friends would just pump up the music and just scream. I don't know why. But here I was in the middle of nowhere. I was looking up at the sky, and I was staring at the most amazing, most intense, immense sight I'd ever seen in my short life at that time. Stars. So many stars in the sky. And as we were laying there in the canoe, I suddenly saw a shooting star zoom across the sky. And I will be very honest, I had no idea what I was seeing in, my, in front of my because I'd never seen one before. It was amazing. My, my poor friends, though, they totally missed it. And so I don't know why we thought of this, but suddenly we're like, hey, God, I know this is not really an important prayer, but you know, it would be really great if you could send one more where all three of us could see it at the same time. We were foolish. But we started laying back and looking up at the sky, and suddenly another shooting star starts coming across. And it's going really slow so all three of us could see it. And as I think back, that probably should have made us think it was like, an alien invasion, because that comet was going very slowly across the sky. But at that moment, we were just in such awe of what we were seeing. Verse 1 of today's psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. So for me, staring into the expanse and seeing the work of God's hands, it left all of us initially it just speechless. Then, in a minute or two, we became giddy. We were just starting laughing because the heavens were declaring the glory and the majesty and the magnificence of God right before our eyes. It was phenomenal, and we didn't know what else to do but just to laugh and joy. Psalm 19. As I was reading this, this is an astonishing poem that explains how God, God is, uh, makes himself known by two things. The first he makes himself known by his work, and he makes himself known by his word. So the glory and the majesty of God is evident by the natural world around us that God created, and the clarity of God's grace and his mercy is evident by the word of God provided to us. And we're going to look at those two, but let's look at the first one first. How God's glory shouts out through his works or his creation. Let me tell you a few stories. A few years ago, Suzette and I, we led a team from our church in San Francisco. We led them to Zambia. And it happened that we were going to be there during a national Zambian holiday. So we had to find a place to go for a few days because there weren't going to be any services available where we were staying. 
we found, decided to take the team to a campsite, which was generously called a uh, safari, because uh, there happened to be some giraffe and zebras, zebras walking around, uh, which was cool, uh, but that's it. There was no lions or anything. But as was my habit, um, I woke up at five uh, to read my Bible, to spend some time with God, and I walked out of our tent. I lit a small candle, and I started boiling some water to make some coffee. And as I sat down outside in the dark, I was sitting right by the water where we had been camped, the sun started to rise above this misty lake, and I was just again in awe of God's majesty. When I was in high school, uh, we did something in our church called a, a lock-in. I don't know if you had that experience before. Um, if you haven't, let me try to explain. It's basically when a bunch of adolescents run around a building because they're locked in and they're not supposed to leave and just create havoc. And so there we were, a bunch of us teenagers, around four or five in the morning, realizing we're not going to sleep and they really haven't locked us in, so we left. Uh, we jumped into our cars uh, and we drove to Montrose Harbor. And we went there because somebody said, hey, let's watch the sunrise. None of us had seen it at that point. And I'll tell you, the constant din of pubescent juveniles incessantly talking, that noise suddenly stopped while we're all sitting on that concrete wall and just stared out as the sun rose above Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. These are my experiences that just came to mind as I was reading this passage of God's majesty through his creation, through his works. I truly hope you have examples of your own that you've experienced, but if you don't, Grab your CG, your community group, go somewhere. Do something to see this because experience God's majesty for yourself and then read this psalm again. Verse 2, it tells us why. Because day after day, this or God's creation pours out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Go watch it. Go hear it. By the way, creation, day after day, night after night, God's work doesn't just pour out speech, right? I was reading the original Hebrew, or I, don't, I looked up the original Hebrew text, and that word they use there, the better definition is gushes. Day after day, night after night, all of God's creation gushes out the beauty and the majesty and glory of God. And this gushing, it, it absolutely transcends culture, and it transcends language. It transcends everything. Verse 3, there's no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. See, day after day and night after night, creation gushes out God's majesty through God's creation with words and without words. Creation speaks and yet does not speak. Creation cries out, yet is silent. There's a, uh, the Passion Translation translates verses 2 and 3 a little differently. I, I, I have it here. It says this. Each day gushes out its message the next. Night by night, whispering its knowledge to all without a sound, without a word, without a voice being heard. Because the majesty and the glory of God, it cannot be explained with mere words alone. The beauty and the majesty and glory of God, it is communicated with words and it's communicated with the gospel and it's communicated with the fruits of the spirit, it's communicated with scripture and it's communicated with the sky and with a nice breeze on a hot day and with refreshing waters from Lake Michigan. It's created with 
and spoken with all of creation. See, verses 1 to 6 of this psalm, it paints a picture of how we can experience and how we can see the majesty and the glory of God by His creation, by His work. Now, as I was thinking about this, I want to be clear about something. I am not equating God's creation with God the Creator, right? You know, Mother Nature is not God. Mother Nature is not a co-creator or co-eternal with our God. That's not it at all. David's poem here in Psalm 19, it is pointing out that we have a glimpse of the Creator via His creation. But creation is not and never will be equal to our Creator. All that we see is an echo, a representation of the actual. You see a similar reference in Exodus and in Hebrews uh, when God's explaining that the tabernacle that was to be built by the Israelites, the tabernacle would only ever be a copy, a shadow of the glory of heaven. So everything we witness in the natural world, it gives us a little sneak peek of what God's glory is truly like. But all of creation in its majesty is only ever going to be a mere shadow of our creator. <clears throat> and I, as I was reading this, um, I had to wonder, you know, if God is so evident, if God is so evident in all of creation, and this evidence is available to anyone and everyone, why don't more people see the reality of who God is? And I was studying, I think Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 23 explains why that is. <clears throat> it says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, reptiles. In other words, Paul's explaining this. People cannot, do not recognize God in his majesty, in his majesty because humanity has suppressed and replaced God's truth through God's works with their own. Society has decided that it is better to not focus on the beauty of God, but rather on the beauty of self, or, or to create a creator of their own making. So God's revelation through God's creation that is absolutely available to all of humanity, it is not enough to fully expose the redeeming work of God available to all of humanity because we choose it not to be. The word of God is needed with the works of God to show us the grace of God. That's what we come to in the second half of this particular psalm. And before we look at that, though, verse 1 
uh, and you don't have to turn to it, but verse 1 of the psalm, it uses the word El uh, for the word God. When David says, the heavens declare the glory of God, he uses the word El. El is a general name for God. But then starting in verse 7, David switches it up and uses, instead of El, uses God's name that he gave to Moses, Yahweh, God's revealed name. So the instruction. Uh, in verse 7, the instruction of Yahweh is perfect. The, the testimony of Yahweh is trustworthy. The, the precepts of Yahweh are right. The command of Yahweh is radiant. The fear of Yahweh is pure. The ordinances of Yahweh are reliable. And I truly believe that David is extremely intentional switching and using the revealed name of God, Yahweh. David is using this revealed name of God from verses 7 on to show how we can go from knowing of the creator by his creation to knowing God, to knowing the great I am by his word. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14 to 17, Paul writes this. How then can they call on him who they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about it? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Now let me explain. Paul's pointing out that God, the creator, that Yahweh reveals himself to his beloved by the preaching of the message about Christ, by the sharing of the word, the message that speaks of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross for our sake. And Paul does not stop there. He goes on to verse 18 and says, But I ask, did they not hear? Yeah, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. And Paul quotes that psalm that we're looking at today. And he quotes it to point out that God, the creator, has also revealed himself through his creation. So it's the word of God with the works of God that reveals the grace of God so that the beloved of God might be able to proclaim Christ as their Redeemer and Savior. Now, I want to take a moment before we uh, start wrapping up um, to consider the Word of God that David is describing in verses 7 to 9. In verse 7, he calls it instruction, which in Hebrew is Torah. Uh, he calls the Word of God the testimony. In verse 8, he calls it precepts, which mean canon and co uh, commandments. In verse 9, he calls it ordinances. And he instructs us to fear it, which is a good thing. And every synonym for the word, the word of God that David uses, emphasizes that this word is from Yahweh, from Jehovah, the one and only God who created all things and holds all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. 
So this word of God, this instruction, this testimony, this canon, this, these commands, they come from this same God that we just described who knows everything and who controls everything. And if this word inspired and breathed by God that is given to us so that with, this, the, with the works of God, we might truly know and be brought into the family of God, this is what we need to seek out. Verse 10 tells us to uh, constantly run to this word over everything else, everything else that might seem more valuable. Verse 10 reads, they are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. So Psalm 19 shows the reader that the word of God, with the works of God, reveals the grace of God, so that the beloved of God might proclaim Christ as their Redeemer and Savior. And I'll tell you, as I'm reading this and considering this, it instills me personally such an immense and intense love for this God, for our God. I read this poem, and I think David was probably feeling the same way. He felt that the, he the heavens and the Declare the glory of the God that I love. The Torah is from Yahweh, whom I love. And this instruction from God is absolutely perfect. And so this is there. But I still sin. I still run from God. David loved God with all his heart, soul, and might. But he still hurt God. Now, I want you to understand that our love for God, it is evidence that we are the beloved of God, that we are part of the family of God, that we are sisters and brothers in Christ together. Romans chapter 8, verse 21, it says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And I'll tell you, at the same time, the work of being sanctified by God it is absolutely ongoing. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on, will carry it on to completion until, day, until the day of Christ Jesus. See, the work to remove sin will continue because we're sinners. We are made righteous in God's eyes by the work of Christ on the cross. But we're not there yet. Right? And so we come to the end of the psalm where David is now providing us a reminder of what we must do to run away from sin and to run to God, the God we love. Now, there are two types of sins that David points out. Um, one is in verse 12, unintentional sin. And the second is verse 13, willful sin. Now, unintentional sin, I'll tell you when I read it, it seemed a little odd, you know, uh, to not know that you're sitting. But here, here's a couple of examples I thought of. Maybe you're new to faith and you did not realize that, for example, gathering together and supporting the body of Christ, these are commands given in Scripture. And so you were unintentionally sinning because you had not been taught this. And so there's one example of unintentional sin you just didn't know. Maybe the, another might be that you've been so ingrained in a pattern of sin for so long that when someone shows you that Scripture commands a different path to follow, you can't even comprehend it because you are so into whatever it is, that, that habit. So you don't even realize that you're sinning. That could be unintentional sin. But then we go to verse 13, it talks about willful sin. Other translations use the word presumptuous, flagrant, selfish. Basically, this second type of sin, I think David points out, is the one that, where we think we know better. We think we know better than God how we should live our life. 
Because we make then the decision to arrogantly, to flagrantly, to selfishly, to willfully ignore God's instruction and God's precepts and God's laws. And instead, we follow our own. So Psalm 19 shows the reader that the word of God with the works of God, it reveals the grace of God. It reveals the grace of God so that the beloved of God might proclaim Christ as their redeemer and as their savior. And even though we love God with all that we are, we still stumble, we still sin, we still trip and fall. But how we come back, how we live out this love that we have for God, David provides a formula in verses 12 to 14. Now, for the sake of time, because we still have a lot of other things to take care of this today, I'm just going to point these out to you really quickly. The first one is this. The first rule of thumb is uh, pray for God's pardon or pray for God's forgiveness. Verse 12, David prays for cleansing from hidden faults. The second is this, pray for God's power. In verse 13, David prays that God not allow sin to rule him. And the third one, the final one, is by praying for God's transformation. In verse 14, we pray that the Holy Spirit uh, conform us to God's nature so that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to God alone. Psalm 19, it proclaims that the works of God and the word of God together reveals God to us. And it is there to show us that the beloved our God are able to fight for our love of God through prayer. Through prayer to pray for God's forgiveness, to pray for God's power, and to pray for God's transformation within our lives. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.